This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the very niche and kind of geeky details of modern warfare with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to Maya Jabaili. She's the AFP correspondent in Iraq, based in Baghdad. And she's going to be telling us about what is basically a WhatsApp network that was used all over Syria for people to catch fleeing ISIS fighters to find out who they were at checkpoints here, there and everywhere. It's really fascinating and a really good use of low-tech technology and warfare. We also talk about how it's got harder for people to catch ISIS now they've been ground down to such a small force in the countryside in Derizor. Please consider supporting Popular Front. Go to patreon.com slash popular front. Even if it's just a dollar a month, it all helps. And remember to subscribe to us on YouTube, youtube.com slash popular front. So, Mayor, you've been looking into the various networks that are basically trying to catch fleeing ISIS fighters. Tell us about that. Uh, so this was actually around the late 2017 when ISIS was losing a lot of a lot of territory across eastern and and northern Syria. Um, so back then I was at uh, AFP's office based in Beirut, and we cover we cover basically everything that happens across across the Syrian conflict. Um, and I was talking to a, a friend who's an activist um, who is from Deir Ezzor in, in eastern Syria, but who is currently based in Germany. And he was telling me, you know, yeah, you know, recently I was I was up all night last night because I was, you know, on these on these WhatsApp groups and looking at pictures of ISIS fighters trying to flee. And, you know, I just didn't get much much sleep. And I was like, wait, I'm sorry. What did you just say? What what are you doing? What are you spending your nights doing? So just from that kind of off the cuff remark, um, I found out that there were these Syrian activists that had put together these these WhatsApp groups and they were using these WhatsApp groups. Basically, the best way that I can explain it to you is that it's kind of like a virtual lineup at a at a police station, um, and they had set up these groups as a way to uh, try to identify virtually people who were claiming that they were civilians trying to flee ISIS areas that were falling into anti-ISIS forces, but that were actually ISIS fighters trying to trying to get out and trying to make their way into the into the other parts of Syria. Um, so uh, yeah, it was completely by accident that we that we came across the story, but um, but it was a really fascinating look at how these these applications that we use every day, um, WhatsApp basically, are are actually helping uh, these forces who are not very well equipped be able to to track down these fighters. Um, so I can explain to you how it works if you if you want. I can tell you kind of have through it, take you through how it how it works. Yeah, like what? What is it? It's just one big group chat, or what? How do they actually go about doing it? So basically, they they put together. It's 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 really funny. They put together these these groups of um, as many activists as they could get a hold of, as well as these Turkish backed armed groups that were controlling northern parts of Syria that that these uh, that these civilian populations were fleeing to. So you had these mostly you know groups of people that were making their way from eastern Syria from the tribal parts into northern Syria, into areas that they could then cross into Turkey. So as they were trying to get into these armed opposition group 
um, controlled zones, you know, they would cross through these checkpoints. And sometimes you had hundreds and hundreds of people cross through these checkpoints a day. And there were these, you know, armed groups at the checkpoints that were trying to identify, you know, who among these guys, you know, some of them have been, you know, have, have really long beards. Some of them clearly have recently shaved their beards. Some of them look like, you know, they, they could be sketchy. They cannot identify who these guys are that are coming through and who are claiming that they're actually, that they're, that they're civilians fleeing, um, areas formerly under ISIS control. So what they would do is they would record videos and take pictures and record even sound sound bites of these guys talking, explaining who they are, uh, what happened to them, uh, what they used to do pre-ISIS, etc. And they would send them to these WhatsApp groups. And in these WhatsApp groups, you had dozens of activists, you had even members of uh, civilian courts, you had members of Turkish-backed rebel groups that were close to Turkish intelligence as well, and they would send these, basically these um, mugshots, I guess you could say, into these groups. And then you had activists from everywhere, from all who were living all around the world, but who were originally from these villages in eastern Syria, who would say, "Wait a minute, I recognize that guy. He says that he's a civilian, but actually he was the local ISIS police chief." in my neighborhood, or he was the guy that used to run this particular office under ISIS control, or he was the one that gave me 55 lashes when, you know, when I was caught smoking a cigarette. And so they were able to identify these guys literally from halfway around the world often, um, and, uh, and, and point them out to these forces that were controlling these checkpoints. And this is how they claim they were able to detain hundreds, you know, several hundred, um, ISIS fighters, most of them were people obviously who were a little bit lower level because they would have they would have interaction with the public. Um, they claim to have also caught a few higher higher up guys who you know may not have had that much face time with with regular civilians but who were recognizable because of you know they had a particular gunshot wound somewhere or their voices were recognized or or things like that. So they'd recognize them through their accents. Um, they'd recognize them through, um, you know, if they were caught in a particular firefight and they had a bullet wound in a particular place, an activist would say, listen, I know this guy was wounded in, in you know, in his left rib or something, and they'd be able to pick them out that way. So it was a really, it was a really interesting look into how, yeah, into how they were able to catch these guys. So it's like a social network specifically with the purpose of basically catching fleeing ISIS fighters. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And these were and this initiative was launched by a bunch of activists who are from Deir Zor, who who are from an area and who are from a, a, a province um, where, you know, which is now basically the last ISIS stronghold, the last tiny bit of territory that, that is being fought over. Um, and so clearly ISIS has been able to entrench itself pretty pretty profoundly in that territory. And these were guys who every time I talked to them would tell me, like, listen, yeah, the you know ISIS is losing territory, but we know that there are there are people, there's personnel, there's institutional knowledge that is fleeing those areas, and that's what we want to make sure it doesn't get out. And so it was really out of a personal commitment to 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 kind of to, to being an to being anti-Islamic state uh, that they had put together these these WhatsApp groups. And does this network have a name or anything like that? No, it it didn't. Um, they would just call them like. The checkpoint groups, basically in in Arabic, because uh, every given every WhatsApp group was you know was fielding pictures and videos from around two dozen checkpoints. 
um, and uh, they ran twenty four seven all the time. And sadly, they're they're actually they're actually not they're not running anymore. Uh, so as as the territory became so small, as the ISIS control territory became so small, the groups kind of fell into disuse. And then I think also as things in northern Syria became more and more complicated. Um, these groups were running at a time when Aleppo and Idlib were kind of relatively calm. And, you know, there, there was some rebel infighting, but it was not to the extent that we saw at the, you know, in the beginning of 2018 and kind of throughout that year. So as that conflict has heated up and as um, has taken other parts of it, the province, the, these groups were no longer used. Uh, so, so sadly, they're they're not being used anymore. Which I think, you know, is a is a you have to ask that question of what's going to happen now when you have, you know, probably thousands of ISIS fighters that are that are able to flee Deir Ezzor pretty openly and other areas that they controlled in Syria and Iraq. Who's kind of keeping tabs on them, or who's kind of doing this? Uh, is there any process that's that's doing the same? You know, that's replicating that that line up process now not that i've been able to find and what do you think uh what do you think is going to happen now you know like you just said isis is basically on its last legs in syria everybody's running all over the place um the ypg sdf they're capturing quite a lot of these fighters um but what do you think is going to happen now surely there are a lot of um native syrian fighters that join isis that are just going to fall back into the neighborhood don't you think you know shave off their beard take off their fatigues and then, you know, claim to have been a refugee or a farmer or whatever. There's a lot of unknowns, obviously, about what, uh, to what, to what level the SDF and other U.S.-backed forces are going to be able to keep up the, the intelligence operations that it requires to, to keep tabs on these ISIS guys if they're going to be uh, busy trying to, you know, watch their back all the time with, with, with a U.S. withdrawal. Um, you know, there have been reports, obviously, that the that the SDF has been collecting uh, biometric information, fingerprints, uh, DNA samples, retinal scans, even from Syria and even from from Iraq, to be able to keep basically um, uh, as much data as they can on these on these accused fighters. But then, what do you do with that, right? So, if you if your personnel are busy fighting some other conflict, or either fighting Turkish forces, or um, or just kind of watching their back and trying to maintain security in their own zones. How are they able to expend the personnel to go after these ISIS fighters that are that are melting back into into their societies? Uh, you know, obviously, as the Syrian government also kind of exerts its its control across parts of Syria, uh, it you have a question of how much maneuverability they're going to have in terms of territory, if they're actually going to be able to go in and conduct intelligence operations in, in any of these areas. Um, and the same, I mean, in Iraq, the question, which, which is where I'm based now, the question is way less complicated to a degree, because you have essentially you have one government and yes you have a lot of different armed groups that are that are um, controlling different parts of the country you have security forces that are uh, you know based around different parts that coordinate with each other but don't often don't always take orders from one another but at the same time it is it's, it is one country at the end of the day Syria is in a way it's a beast it's a way more complicated story yeah definitely um, and I think as well, there's this this issue now where there are still actually a fair few foreign ISIS fighters. Like at least we're seeing that the YPG caught um, 
a Canadian fighter the other day. He was the guy that was in uh, Flames of War 1 and 2, the ISIS propaganda videos where he's executing people and the rating and all of that horrible stuff. Um, did you did you see in the in the WhatsApp networks, did they manage to actually capture any foreign fighters? Because I imagine they're kind of, you know, the gold medal, if you like. They did. They did, actually. And, and so I was asking about nationalities. Um, and obviously the, the idea is that foreign fighters are way... Or, you know, especially Western foreign fighters would be much um, much easier to identify because you would think that they would look different, they would sound different, they wouldn't be able to blend in that easily to civilian populations trying to flee. So they told me at the time that they had they were catching Syrians and Iraqis basically in an equal number, in particular Iraqis who were from uh, who were from areas where the accent might sound similar to kind of the the Deir Zor accent, and so they could kind of blend in that way. Um, but they said they also had caught. Um, um, nationals from Saudi, from Morocco, from Tunisia, and they had caught at least one French fighter with his with his family. Um, a lot of the guys that I've seen the SDF catch as well are often from mixed backgrounds, so they they won't be kind of strictly you know strictly French, but they might be you know. I think there was a guy recently that was like Spanish, but also from Moroccan descent, etc. Uh, so yeah, they they had been able to catch to catch these foreign nationals, uh, but you know if these checkpoints and these groups don't exist anymore, I I really I really do wonder how how much easier it has been for these ISIS members to be able to move around that area, and then from then from there to get into Turkey and to get into other areas. Uh, if these if these groups and that level of security coordination doesn't exist, and do do you think ISIS were aware of these networks when they were you know up and running at full pelt? I know you said they're kind of dying out now, but do you think ISIS were aware of them? Yeah, I don't know. I I do wonder that because it, it's so um, it's not sophisticated at all, right? Like it's literally it's it's just a WhatsApp group where they're sending pictures and say, "Do you recognize this guy?" Uh, so ex- extremely ad hoc, and at the same time, it seemed to be quite quite effective. Or they were doing, they were they were kind of working with whatever they had. Um, so I'm not sure how much ISIS was able to go back and warn, you know, maybe fighters that got through the checkpoint were able to just send messages back to warn their, you know, their co-fighters that this security operation had been had been put into place. Um, but it's 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 something that's pretty difficult to to try to uh, maneuver around, especially when you have that level of kind of human knowledge in a single WhatsApp group. So you have these activists that lived under ISIS control and could literally identify people's accents. So you had somebody who would pretend to be from one Derezor tribe uh, because that Derezor tribe was known to be anti-ISIS, for example, and his voice would be sent to this group and this group would immediately kind of unanimously say that accent is from this different city and all of those guys had you know you know all of those guys were known to have joined ISIS uh, so you had this you were they were able to leverage this kind of human capital this human experience um, it's kind of it is what foreign intelligence agencies try try to do as well um, but they were able to do it just by putting, you know, a couple dozen activists into a WhatsApp group and have them all post uh, post messages within a few hours of each other. So they literally, I don't know, say, you know, a YPG guy or whoever is at a checkpoint catches this guy, he seems suspicious. You're saying they would literally go, hey, you speak into this, send a voice clip to the WhatsApp group, and then, I don't know, 100 miles away or whatever, guys would say, yeah, that's this guy, that's that guy, just based on that. Even Even thousands of miles away, yeah. 
That's exactly that's exactly what would happen. They would get a response. They they told me that their their kind of their cap was within two hours. Um, so yeah, they would keep these guys waiting at the checkpoint for two hours. But sometimes that meant you know that meant the difference between catching and an ISIS fighter and and not. Um, so they would be able to do these background checks on these guys by sending videos of them. Uh, they would vi they would even film the the IDs that these guys were trying to cross the checkpoints with and so if they were trying to cross the checkpoint with someone's ID uh, who you know who is who their neighbor might be in that in in the WhatsApp group and say no listen this is my neighbor's ID I know my neighbor died in an airstrike and or whatever had you know has has long been dead they were able to basically uncover you know hundreds of incidents where people were trying people were saying that they were somebody they were not as they were trying to get through. And how effective do you reckon it was? Do you think that yeah. this has actually led to people being, you know, sent to prison or maybe sent back to their countries or what? Or they just kind of put everybody in a holding pen? Because I know that specifically Europe and Britain especially just are not really interested in taking back their ISIS fires. Yeah, so, so this one, so because most of the guys that were crossing through these checkpoints were, were regional fighters, they were mostly... Um, either Syrian, Iraqi, or just other, or from other parts of the Middle East, you quite rarely had foreign fighters, like non-Arab fighters that were, that were crossing through. What would happen to them is they would be then sent to the, 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 the civilian courts that would try them. So these are the groups that were running these checkpoints, just to, just to clarify, were, were all the ones that I spoke to were all Turkey-backed armed opposition groups. So they would these they would then refer these fighters to the, the court system there, and they'd be tried as part of the court system there. Some of them would be sent to these rehabilitation uh, centers. If you've seen some of the reporting on those, they were they were rehab centers that basically were meant to de-radicalize. Uh, varying degrees of success yeah de-radicalized like fucking good luck with that the guy's just been chopping heads yeah <laughs> yeah to, to make these guys not uh not extremists anymore somehow uh and then release them i'm sure if they were syrian release them back into syrian society uh for the for the moroccan and the and the iraqi and the and the tunisian fighters that were that were caught i'm not sure what happened um and i'm not sure how much coordination these guys had with other arab governments so the what they told me, the, the people that they primarily had cooperation with was Turkish intelligence. So, um, so they would they were working with Turkish intelligence to identify people that they were afraid would cross into Turkey. But the guys that were at the checkpoints that I was interviewing told me we don't know what happens to these to these non Syrians when they get caught and they get sent to the court systems we don't follow up with with those so so just in terms of the whatsapp group they didn't they didn't have a, a say in the legal process or the detention process afterwards and they said they, that they were not coordinating with any western intelligence at that at that point so mm. I, I tell you something interesting when i was in prison in turkey um you know that stupid situation where i was sent there for you know doing my job um, when we were deported, we were moved to what's basically a deportation jail. So everyone there pretty much is from somewhere else. You know, there were Afghans, there was an Iranian guy. Some of them were just refugees who, you know, have been trying to get to Europe. They pick them up on the border and send them to be deported. But then there was about 20 ISIS fighters, like absolutely 100%. They were like, yeah, we're ISIS, whatever. Everybody was telling you like, these are Dashis. 
Um, they had like bullet wounds in their arms and the majority of them were Chechen. There was a Tajiki, there was an African fighter. There was a British guy as well. He was like a Cockney. It was crazy. He was like, all right, boys. And I was like, wow, like you came to make dua. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, it, was, yeah, it wasn't very fun. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, the, the, th the reason I'm bringing this up is because I kept in touch with um, these two Afghan lads that spoke English that I made really good friends with in there. And when they were released uh, from the deportation prison, I mean, they didn't even think they were going to be released because they're getting told they're being deported. So they're basically released without charge along with all the ISIS fighters. Now, that's not some conspiracy theory. Like, I, know, I trust this, this kid, like protected my life you know in there he had no reason to lie to me and when we got out he was like yeah i couldn't believe it like all these chechen isis guys just got let go out into the main population and off they went and and you do wonder i mean how how much these foreign governments are are, are leveraging their contacts with these people um especially people that they might then try to turn or send back into into theater to try to use as intelligence assets uh, and that's something again. Like these guys, the guys that I was interviewing were the the kind of they were at the 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 last rung, right? They were like at the bottom of the uh, of the food pyramid, um, and they were telling me what their their day to day experiences were. But they were like, "This is all above my pay grade." Like if they, if these guys end up getting released back into back into Syria by some other force. We don't, we don't know. But as far as we can, what we're doing right here is we have this kind of vast, you know, net that we're able to that we're able to catch these guys at. Um, and then, as you're right, I mean, then then the big question is what what happens afterwards and what foreign governments are, are doing to to track them in the aftermath. Again, that's what that's what the question is for me now. I I do wonder, like, how are these guys going to be going to be tracked? You have, um, I mean. You have the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights reporting that there were thousands of people that were that were moving, that were being evacuated from Hajin in recent weeks. So, if you have twenty five thousand people, according to the UN, that have fled over the last six months, you have people being evacuated over the last two months, according to the Syrian Observatory. Where are all these people going, and who's tracking them, and who know? And and I mean, if you have U.S. forces with, withdrawing. You have fewer and fewer experienced intelligence services that are there that know how to track these guys and have an interest in making sure that they don't have the mobility that they want to have. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, especially to bring up Mambidge, because, you know, this week ISIS presumed, or at least they claimed it was one of their fighters, uh, you know, set off a suicide bomb, killed people, killed, what is it, four or maybe five US troops now, killed children absolutely awful and like like you said how can that happen in Mambich? like surely they have the intelligence to know what's going on there yeah like we were like we were talking about a, a few minutes ago Mambich has probably the highest concentration and the most diverse concentration of foreign forces that are that are fighting in syria you have patrols essentially by every everyone that is fighting the syrian conflict is kind of conducting some kind of patrol around Mambich or has some kind of forces uh present around around Mambich. and yet this attack was able to happen this week at a time where the debate over the U.S. presence in northern Syria has never been more intense. Um, so it's uh, it's going to be a huge decision-making point for the for the U.S. Obviously, for the SDF, for the Turks to kind of look at what security operations um, are able to do and are not able to do in that area, and maybe reevaluate their 
their their choices. I, I'm not I'm I'm not envious uh, of anybody reporting directly from there or anybody having to make any of those calls because it's a it's an incredibly difficult decision to make right now. I don't know. I'm I'm curious what what you think as well. If 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 you think this means they should backtrack. Well, me, I, I don't think they should have been withdrawing anyway. Like you don't spend that much money securing the area. And then suddenly just go, right, we're going to get out now, like completely betraying the people you've been fighting alongside. I mean, look, I don't care if you, you know, if people hate Kurds, like Kurds, whatever. If you're meant to be the strongest military force in the world, you use these people to fight ISIS, which was a threat to all of us, and then go, see ya, bye, and leave them for Turkey and then have the audacity to then say like, oh yeah, well, there's going to be a, a, a buffer zone that Turkey's going to create. And we've asked them not to massacre you though. Like, how about you look at the history of what has happened to these people, you know? Like, it's going to be chaos. So, I don't know. I, I guess I'm biased in that way. I don't think they should have left. Now, I'm not saying, oh yeah, like forever war. I don't want a forever war out there, but this is the only force really that you can hang around with and not going to cut your fucking head off in your sleep to then abandon them and leave them to the wolves I think is was just outrageous anyway and even even from a monetary point of view I think like the amount of money that the US has put into Mambij and Kobani and then it's going to be completely destroyed if if um, you know if Turkey get this buffer zone because let's be honest you know everybody oh YPG are nothing without airstrikes well you, you will see the guerrilla tactics come back absolutely definitely I think if this buffer zone gets put into place but yeah I don't know it's just the whole thing <laughs> the Mambij thing very weird I don't know the whole thing's fucking weird it's chaos I think if they do pull out you're just going to see more chaos like that you know it's 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 just not good it doesn't look good to me you know and like you're saying these these guys have been catching like fleeing ISIS fighters and whatever uh, and, and you, you know you said all these people have been removed from Hajin I guarantee there are loads of them kind of waiting you know sleeper cells and what have you that can quite easily come back if things start to fall apart Absolutely. I mean, and and it's it's a it's a different debate, but it's a parallel debate that's happening over here in in Iraq. Um, I've only been based here since November, so I'm still quite new to the country and quite new to the conflict or post conflict, whatever whatever phase we're supposed to be in now. Um, but there is a debate that is happening as well over U.S. forces involvement here, and uh, there's you know there's a there. Iraq is, I think, even more of a rumor mill than than Syria. Um, I've noticed in the past couple of weeks. So there were a lot of rumors flying around that there's an increase in, in there's a there's a huge increase in the U.S. Uh, presence in various bases across the country, um, and that got a lot of Iraqi journalists talking. And so one of them posed the question to the Iraqi Prime Minister recently, and he says that actually the the U.S. force presence has decreased over the past year, that in, in the beginning of 2018, there were 11,000 foreign forces, about 70% of which were American. And by the end of the year, there was down to 8,000 foreign forces, about 6,000 of which were were, were American. Um, and so it seems like there's, there's a continuous drawdown in Iraq as well, uh, at a time when Donald Trump has said that he would plan to use Iraq as a base from which to attack ISIS if there was to be any any resurgence. Um, so that just goes, it's it's another kind of, uh, yet another example of, of, of U.S. promises when it comes to IS or, or pledges um, when it comes to continuing and making sure that the ISIS conflict or the anti-ISIS conflict is truly wrapped up the way that it should be, and then actions on the ground that seem to, you know, t- to the average person to indicate the contrary. 
so I'm not, I've never been in the military, I'm not a military expert, but when you look at, you know, what it takes to reassure partners and what it takes to make sure that a, the battle is really seen through 100 percent, um, there seems there seems to be some kind of discrepancy there. No, I agree. You know, I've I've never been anything to do with the army military myself, but I think you don't have to be. I think it's just common sense that if you pull so much resources into destroying this, you know, horrific threat that was ISIS and is ISIS, maybe finish it off. <laughs> like, don't just leave it, uh, you know, half finished or or like a little bit not finished because. You know, they're like cockroaches. They'll always come back. You can't really kind of stamp them out. You have to really get rid of them. I just, yeah, it's, I think it's common sense, but what do I know, you know? Um, Maya, what I wanted to ask you about as well is, you know, you've done a lot of work in Syria, a lot of really good work. I've been reading your work for ages. Um, why do certain fighters flee from ISIS and certain fighters stay? Because, you know, you look at their, their propaganda, they're, oh, every jihadi will fight till the last breath. We are the Mujahideen. Bullshit. A lot of them run off. But why is it that some stay and fight, do you think? And why is it some just say, right, I'm done? Are they are they trying to regroup and do attacks in Europe? Or do you think they're just, <laughs> they've retired? The first the first answer that, that I would give uh, would would be that it has to do with their rank in the group. Um, I think you have a lot of higher level people that had the mobility, had the finances, um, and had the kind of uh, the network that it takes to be able to flee. And they knew that if they stayed, they actually were not, they would never be able to hide out within the civilian population as a, as a regular person because they would be found out. So those, those people, those higher level security guys um, who could leave with a certain amount of money, who could buy themselves a new identity and who could find their way to Europe because they would be useful there, would end up leaving. Then you had kind of lower level guys who um, maybe thought that they could blend into the civilian population they didn't have the finances to go um or they like they really weren't that consequential in the organization anyway and so decided that you know the their best bet would be to kind of just try to stick it out and uh, and try to pretend like it never happened um it, it is quite hard to get into an isis fighter's mind <laughs> and try to understand why they why they make the decisions that they do uh, but the the guys that ultimately the guys that are able to get themselves out are usually better placed in the organization in the first place I spoke to a ISIS prisoner in Iraq in 2015 and one guy was the media guy and he got caught and then the other guy was a farmer who just basically like his brother said if you don't join I'll shoot you in the head he was really you know uneducated and he actually fled because he was just like fuck this this is outrageous you know what I mean and then obviously he got arrested but yeah I, I can imagine that yeah like you said that you got a better job you're probably going to work out a different way to go yeah yeah exactly and and I mean you, there, there is a real question that you have to ask here about the lower level guys um, and whether they were genuinely supporters of ISIS or whether they felt like they had they had no choice. I'm not sure if that should play a role in you know how those individuals are then tried and sentenced. Uh, but I think it does. You know, we do have to think about. Uh, people who were not necessarily, you know, they didn't they didn't believe in the ideology, but they felt like they had to to survive. They had to join this join this organization. So what do those guys do? If those guys feel like they're not actually at risk because they never really believed in the ISIS ideology, and so they think if they stick around and they stay in their hometown, that they'll be okay, and their neighbors won't tell on them or 
they won't actually face any consequences, then they might feel like they're they're better place to stick around. And there, people do genuinely think about their resources. When you think about individual decision making, you can at least think that you know here's a guy who basically joined up with you know the local ISIS police force because he had he really had no other job prospects. Um, and uh, and so if he was to flee, he also wouldn't really have any job prospects in anywhere else that he was to live in Syria and so he'd rather ultimately just stay right where he is and and try to rebuild his life um, and hope that he can put everything that he did past him but I mean it's it is again really hard to try to get into their heads and try to try to you know source out suss out why they make the decisions that they do yeah I mean you're right there is definitely a big difference but well I'm kind of you know people say ISIS I'm like fuck them do whatever you want with them like to whichever country pick them up um, which is an unpopular opinion but I don't care but I, I think you are right there is definitely a big difference between you know a guy that was kind of hanging around forced into it or whatever didn't really know how what else to do but then you get these guys that have joined post 2014 come from across the country do you think that the foreigners are more likely to flee or do you think they're more likely to stay because they're so hardline or do you think they're thinking fuck i, I might be able to sneak back into my old life well in 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 the experience that um that i had in Raqqa, so i was i was in syria in between late september 2017 to late october 2017 reporting on the last basically the last month that the SDF was was fighting in in Raqqa, and there was one um, kind of interesting incident where I was I was talking to a French fighter with with the YPG, um, and who was fighting with one of the one of the more elite battalions, not within the international fighters battalion, but was basically embedded with a with a regular battalion that was manning one of the front lines right near the national hospital. The hospital in, in Raqqa was one of the last places where, where ISIS fighters had been holed up. And he told me about um, a, um, the, the previous day when his battalion's commander had asked him to come out with a megaphone to the front of the hospital and to speak in French into the megaphone and ask French foreign fighters inside or basically tell them to come out and, and surrender, otherwise the hospital would be stormed. Uh, so, you know, in no that way. scenario... <laughs> yeah. So in that scenario, you had, uh, you had SDF and senior YPG forces uh, pretty sure that the last guys that were, that were holed up in that hospital with some civilian uh, human shields were foreign fighters, were French, were Belgian, um, basically French-speaking, and uh, and a few other nationalities as well. Um, I'm not I, I'm I'm not sure that what we're looking at now is comparable. I'm I'm not I'm I'm not convinced one way or the other. But when you have kind of a uh, like the the actual kind of last hideout where the only other option. To fleeing this area would be to kind of disperse into the into the kind of civilian population or to really be hit you know hiding out in a cave not in kind of an, an an urban stronghold i'm not sure if foreign fighters will have will have lasted this long in in that kind of a situation i mean intelligence services obviously know know way more than me so i can imagine some cia analyst somewhere listening to this right now being like that girl doesn't know what she's talking about people think that about me every day don't worry <laughs> yeah uh when they're listening to your to your podcast you know always yeah well just when i speak <laughs> yeah 
uh, if they would have held out this long or if they would have tried to find their escape route prior to, to this kind of final moment. The other thing is, I mean, how many of the guys that are left are, are locals? And I, it's, it's, it is super sexy to talk about foreign fighters, right? To talk about these, these French guys who were inexplicably radicalized and came to Syria and came to a country that wasn't theirs and wanted to fight this fight that wasn't theirs somehow. Um, and, you know, speaking to the camera and British accents and American accents and whatever. Um, but like these local guys are the ones that I'm really worried about because ultimately, if there if there is going to be a resurgence, if there is going to be some kind of uh, you know some kind of leveraging of of these grievances, who's going to be leveraging those grievances? I really don't think it's going to be the French guy or the American guy or or, or the British guy kind of rallying support among pissed off former ISIS populations in Syria and Iraq. I think it's going to be the, the guys that had experience that were left over, the Syrian and Iraqi guys that were left over from the ISIS that we just experienced that are going to be leveraging the resentment to create the ISIS that we're going to experience next. And so these are the guys that freak me out. That's that's the threat that that really scares me. And that's and that's that's the thing is like they're harder to pick out at a checkpoint. They're harder to identify. They're harder to track. They would much more easily be able to take refuge in a, a, a tribe or in a town that's going to protect them because he's you know he's from there or his family is there or or whatever. So so these guys can hide out. They can go underground much more easily than uh, than these 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 foreign fighters everyone is so is so scared of so um so you know that's that's what i'm interested in uh in in tracking if possible um in in the coming months especially in in iraq uh where we're continuing to see hit and run attacks so we don't we don't have this last battle we don't have this kind of this this one area that everyone is focused on anymore here in Iraq, but we do have on a nearly daily basis news of um, of IS hit and run attacks that are taking place outside Mosul. They're taking place in Kirkuk. They're taking place in you know basically in 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 various governorates across across the country, um, and kind of to, you know everyone's kind of waiting for the big one. Everyone is waiting for kind of these hit and run attacks to create enough of a crack in in the security situation to potentially find ourselves facing an attack in in the capital um and that's what you know that's what's kind of tempering everyone's excitement about the security situation being great back in Baghdad is they're wondering if these hit and run attacks will eventually turn into something more yeah well hopefully not um May I got one more question for you before we wrap this up. What do you think happened to Baghdadi? Do you, do you think he managed to flee, or um, I don't know? Do you think he's you know worm food somewhere? The million, the million dollar question. I think if he's if he's still alive, he's listening to your he's listening to your podcast now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, I I genuinely don't I genuinely don't know. Um, I mean, I I don't even have a theory, you know, and I and I don't think oh, it's on. even useful. Oh come on, yeah, I should have one, right? Um, you know, maybe he's up. Maybe maybe we'll, we'll maybe we'll see him drop a new uh, drop a new recording on on Telegram in, in the in the weeks and months ahead, telling everybody to to hold on and kind of wait to see what happens next but i yeah exactly exactly 
Uh, but who knows? Who knows? I mean, I hope we never hear from him again. I hope we never have to. I hope we never have to have to hear his voice or see his face or uh, or know of his existence ever again. But but in that case, you know, there's still gonna there's still gonna be a question of where exactly is he? And until there's kind of definitive proof that he's dead, like like Bin Laden style or something, you know, quite bombastic and quite um, uh, like high profile, then that question's always gonna be there. Yeah, no, I mean, it's just something that interests me. I always think like, I mean, I hope he's dead. I hope he's just dead and I hope it was horrible. What do you think? What do you think he is? Do you think do you think he's do you think he's somewhere in Syria? Do you think he's somewhere in Iraq? Do you think he's moved on? I mean, I had heard like th- theories like months ago that you know, oh yeah, he's in Sudan or something ridiculous. Uh, yeah, I mean, who knows? Maybe he's like lost a load of weight, cut off his beard, and he's driving a taxi in Sudan. Maybe I don't know, but it, it, who knows, man? But it's just it's just so weird to me how he just kind of just vanished like that. I, yeah, exactly. I think everyone is praying that he's not somewhere biding his time. Um, where can people follow your work, Mayor, and uh, keep in touch with you? Yeah, so I'm on I'm on Twitter um, at G E B E I L Y M. It's complicated. It's uh, Jabali M on Twitter, and uh, and yeah, so I'll be focusing on Iraq for for the next couple of years, probably uh, based in based in Baghdad after three years with AFP in Syria. And thanks so much for having me on, despite the really bad internet connection. <laughs> yeah, no, we made it through. We made it through. No, thanks very much. That was great. <laughs> Bye. That was Mayor Jabali speaking about the WhatsApp networks used to catch fleeing ISIS fighters in Syria. Definitely check out Mayor's work. She's really good. Uh, great journalist. Check her out on Twitter, like she said. This episode, as usual, sponsored by thedefensepost.com. Defense with an S. Really good analysis of various different conflicts all over the world. It was also sponsored by Atlas News on Instagram. Go to instagram.com slash atlas dot news you won't be able to search them up apparently they've got fucking shadow band which is absolutely ridiculous all they do there is share really good interesting information about conflicts going on all over the world but there you go censorship which brings me to the point please do support us on patreon because there will be no adverts none of that kind of shit from any corporate lunatics or any censorship on popular front so go to patreon.com slash popular front even if you just uh consider donating one dollar trust me that really helps like i said we've had over 150,000 unique downloads on the podcast but anyway every little helps we're trying to build up a lot more stuff trying to do some more docs trying to do some uh, bigger things with the podcast as well the website should be launching i don't know i've been going on about this for a while but it's quite expensive to keep it running every month but hopefully it'll be launching um i don't know in the next couple months anyway Currently, the placeholder site we have has all the episodes, so go to popularfront.co for that. Uh, the YouTube is youtube.com slash popularfront. There's loads more docs, uh, footage, all sorts of stuff coming up. Uh, the Yellow Vest Unrest Dispatch that we did is doing really well. It's over like 20,000 views, which considering we don't really have many subscribers is not too bad, I don't think. People seem to like it. Also, do follow us on Instagram. That's instagram.com slash popular.front. And we did get the t-shirts restocked, but they've sold out really quickly. All the merch seems to go really fast, which I'm grateful for, definitely. But um, if you want to pick up a few bits, I think there's some patches and a few t-shirts left. That is popularfront.bigcartel.com. Thank you very much to the following people. Without you lot, this wouldn't be possible at all. They are Adam Berg Snyder, 
Axel Iverson, Chad Walker, Dan Dunham, Daniel Shearer, Darby, Diana Gorvanek, Emily Molly, Fletcher Tate, Jacob Janowski, James from the Discord, Joanne Stocker, Joel Tambusi, Joshua Yabbott, Lawrence Abrahams, LH, Margaret Bowling, Michael Uller, Patrick Bronte, Peter McCormack from the What Bitcoin Did podcast. Definitely check that out if you're into all that sort of stuff. Russia Al-Akidi, Ryan Sandercock, Scartoon, Scott Jonesy, Sean Fowler, Sarushi Hawazi, This Is None, Tony Bin, Zachary Hinch, Anthony Kabarak, and Tim Paul. As usual, music in this episode was by the synthwave artist Home. Check him out. He's on SoundCloud. Just look up Home Resonance. That's how you'll find him, definitely. Uh, and the outro was by Son of Old, my mate Sam. Uh, go to his SoundCloud. That's soundcloud.com slash son-of-old. Dash dash